0: i got to make sure all my pages are here because Matt tried to take some of them away earlier, which made me feel desperation and really resonate with the psalm that we're about to to spend our time in. Uh, I'm Justin Gottlieb. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really good to be with you here this morning. Uh, We're in the fifth week of our sermon series on the psalms, and in this series, we're humbly confessing that a lot of the time when we come to pray, we want to, like we can block off some time. When we show up, we go what do I say? And we don't have a clue a lot of times when we try to talk to God. Um, So this series is giving us a unique opportunity to have the scriptures inform what we pray and the tone of our prayer uh, as we learn from the saints of old. And it really makes sense because who better to learn to pray from than from the people that were actually going to the temple and and spending time uh, before God. So if anyone can get communication with the Father, it should be them. So let's listen well to the, to the psalms. Um, and rather than preaching one psalm a week for over three years, uh, size of Relief just came out there, I know. Uh, the same artwork the whole time, that's what it would be. Uh, instead of doing that for three straight years, uh, we decided to take a handful of psalms this year from the 40s, and we're spending our time there. And uh, we're focusing there, and eventually we may work our way through the psalms, but uh, it won't be in the next three years, so relax. Um, so as we come to the psalms eager to learn, uh, we're eager to have our vocabulary and our to- tone shaped um, by-, by the psalmist. So in some of the other psalms in this series, we've heard prayers of the b- bewildered uh, in Psalm 44, uh, we've heard uh, so the Safe and Sound Dwelling Place, uh, Psalms of Refuge, and Psalm 46, the Taunted and Dying, um, a, a psalm of the taunted and dying in Psalm 41, and then last week we heard a really crazy psalm of an awe-filled poet sitting at a royal wedding. Today, we're going to hear the opposite of that one. Uh, we're going to, again, the roller coaster uh, that Matt keeps talking about, uh, Today we're going to hear the prayer of a desperate guy, uh, as if he's sitting at the bottom of a well, this, this psalmist is thirsty, he's thirsty for God, he needs thirst-quenching, life-giving water of God, that's all we can think of, he's not thirsty like the people in the, the Gatorade commercials, um, even though they try to look real thirsty, you know, they swing a bat, they run laps, but deep down, you know, they just got out of a limo that came from their five-star hotel, so they're not really thirsty. Um, this psalmist is not like those guys at all. He's just far from that. He's thirsty because he hasn't seen water in days. So let's learn from him uh, today. So if you will, pray with me, and uh, we'll get to work on this. Jesus, we, uh, we confess that we need your guidance. We need to know how to pray. We need to know how to communicate with you. Um, because you desire that, and our greatest joy can come from communion with you. So we pray, Lord, that you'll be shaping us through the through the words of the psalmist. You'll be shaping us through the preaching of your word, Lord. So be with us now, spirit, please just blow us away with the majesty of Christ. Amen. My grandfather was a cowboy. You didn't think I was going to start there, did you? Uh, He even had a cool cowboy name like W.A. That's W.A. It's yeah, you don't get it. That's fine. It's a cool cowboy name. He raised and bought cattle uh, and and sold them in a small country town in Arkansas for a living. Now, of course, if you're going to have cattle, you have to have land to put them on because they don't like they don't fit in a you know a small yard um, across from Trafton Park. Um, so he bought land all over this this town, and so it would be 40 acres here and 10 acres here. And um, as he got older, though, and approached retirement, he needed to s- he started selling off the cows. Uh, so, because at some point you just can't do that work any longer, and eventually, when I was in high school, he and my he and my grandmother moved to the neighborhood where my family lived. And um, as part of that, they sold their house, and he started selling off all kinds of land. Um, the reason he was selling it was so that they would be all, that my grandmother would be all right as he was nearing death and uh, eventually passing away. And the one thing he didn't sell though of the land was this place we affectionately called the ranch as if there's only one, um, the ranch. And people in Arkansas do that. So I've heard people say, the mountain, as if there's just one mountain, and it's really 800 feet. So we call this the ranch, though. And uh, the ranch is 160 acres of just pure awesomeness. There's a big open field with lots of trees and, and a creek that cuts through a hillside on the back. And uh, it's just great. And I'm grateful for my grandparents' decision to not sell that, because I've personally been able to enjoy the land a lot. Um, Growing up, I enjoyed getting to work the cows alongside my grandfather, and because I'd get to shoot guns there. Um, the, as long as I didn't shoot the cows, that's where there's always a line. Um, and as I've gotten older, I've enjoyed the land because I get to shoot guns there. And there's something else really cool I like about the land, though it's the fact that there's tons of animals there. So there's different birds, there's squirrels, there's rabbits, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, and there's also turkeys which I love turkeys. I don't know why I'm intrigued by them. They're the stupidest animal. Like, seriously, they're really ignorant. But I love them, and I've spent dozens of sunrises listening to them gobble in the, uh, in the distance. Um, but perhaps the grandest animal that roams the ranch um, is the deer. And I've spent hours walking that land looking for deer, sign of deer. Um, I would walk, try, you know, the roads where they crossed, and look at them, and I've looked for trees where, they would ma- where the males would rub their horns in the fall. And my brother and I would look at each other with this mutual understanding of when we would see this rubbing, and we'd go, That's a big deer. And we would just dream about it. And it's really awkward, and I know that, but I'm sharing that with you guys now. <laughs> and um, so I've also sat near a tree by, by this pond and watched young deer kind of look back like are you looking at why are you here like I can see you and then they would run off um but all of this comes down to the fact that people like to look at deer so I do and I'm guessing a lot of you like to look at deer at some point even if it's pictures whatever they're beautiful animals um so we like to look at them in pictures or on coffee mugs or on t-shirts particularly if the t-shirts say as the deer pants for the water psalm 42 um if it says that then we we love that but some people like to look at them hanging on a wall as well. And, but regardless of the place, the thing that's important is that people like to look at deer. Now, they're a wonderful combination of grace and agility, size and strength. And my other theory is that they seem nicer because they're probably not going to bite you like a tiger would or a lion. So we like animals that don't bite us as much. Now, they might ram you with their horns over and over, but the deer is not going to bite you most likely. So they look kind, and uh, we like that. So when most of us hear verse 1 of this psalm, of Psalm 42, when we hear the psalmist say, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, we probably think of a big, strong, and agile deer uh, with a big set of horns. And we probably think of a deer similar to one that might, that might stroll down to the pond um, on my grandfather's land. But that's not the deer that the psalmist is intending here. The the deer that the psalmist is intending here is not a deer walking down a woody hillside to a flowing creek full of fresh water with squirrels and birds observing. The psalmist is thinking of a a deer that lives in the mountains of the Middle East, and it's during the summer, and the streams are dried up, and the deer hasn't had water in days. Um, Food is scarce, as is the water, so this deer bellows in pain, and you can hear it echoing through the canyons. Um, As death looms, he just bellows. He wants water. Water is nowhere near, though. So we picture this majestic animal tall and surveying the land, and the psalmist is picturing a deer that is literally moments from death. He's dying of thirst. He's staggering around with the last bit of life, hoping to stumble upon any puddle, any stream, anything. The deer is desperate. He just wants water. He wants life. Um, he wants the water, because if not, he's going to die. It's that simple. And that's the image that this psalm begins with. Uh, and we, we have to get that. Um, because the psalmist compares his situation to that deer, that of the thirsty, desperate deer dying that needs water. He, he compares his life to that deer, that's his situation, to that deer who was stumbling across the land, across the dry and rugged hillside, panting for an ounce of water that might continue its life just a little bit longer. The psalmist compares his life to that and says, that is how I pant for God. He's telling us that if he doesn't drink deep of the glories of God quick, he's literally going to die. He's that desperate, and that probably seems really dramatic to us, but trust me, this is way different than like when Perez Hilton like gets the wrong hair color. This is different than that desperate. This isn't a desperation we laugh off. It's one that we should consider and, and perhaps learn, learn from. So as we, as we do this this morning, we're going to ask two questions of the text. First, why is this guy this desperate? Like, really, why are you this desperate? Because um, this is pretty insane. And second, how does this guy respond to his desperation? And that's critical because it's the word of God. And we've got to assume if it's in there and uh, that we need to learn from it. So we've got to learn that from it. So we're going to take the first question to Psalm 45 and see how it answers. Uh, see how it answers it. So why is the psalmist so de- desperate? Reason one. I'm going to give you five reasons from this text, but just hang with me. It's going to be fun. It's not going to be bad. The first reason the psalmist is desperate is because he's been away from God so long. It's simple. He's just been away from God so long. Verse 2, he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? We don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 42. Some think it was King David who wrote it, and others think it was a Levitical uh, worship leader, essentially a worship leader in the temple, that during exile, when Israel could no longer be... Sorry, John. Sorry. they thought it the worship leader who's going to kill me if I touch his guitar. Um, that's who they thought it was. No, there was potential that it was a worship leader in the temple who was taken away during exile and just couldn't get back to the temple. Now, either way, we know this much. The writer of this psalm, the writer of Psalm 42, his life was centered around being in the presence of God at the temple in Jerusalem. We know that for sure. Um, and we, can, we look at that and we say, okay, we've got that. I understand that. But the temple meant something entirely different to the psalmist uh, than coming to Emerson Hall means to us. I mean, one, it was nicer. Uh, but the more important thing uh, was that because of the Holy Spirit, we can gather anywhere now, which is why we look at every building in like a five-mile radius anytime it comes open is because the building is somewhere that we just need to fit everybody into so that we can all hear and respond to God's word together. Okay, that's what we need out of a building. Um, But the situation with the temple was far different because it wasn't about being in a good location, you know, near good roads, near the T. It wasn't about that. It was about being in the location, the location. God actually dwelt in the temple. Um, So to be at the temple was to be in the literal presence of God. In the same way that you can go next door to your neighbor's house to experience the presence of your neighbor, that may or, be, may or may not be a good decision, but you can go next door to experience the presence of your neighbor. And that, in a sense, um, was what going to the temple was. So to go to the temple was to experience God, to see God's, God's dwelling place. And so it was a big deal to not be there because there was God's presence, there was life-giving. Thirst-quenching, God of the universe that lived in that temple. So to be far was a huge deal. And while we don't know why he was far away from the temple, what we do know from this psalm is that he was desperate for God and he couldn't get back. Like the thirsty deer, all of the psalmist's life was leaving him as he's writing these words. Like The, the spiritual aspect of his life was literally causing physical problems. And the dryness of that spiritual life was killing him physically. In verse 3, he writes, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Not only has the psalmist been far from God, but this isn't something that just happened yesterday. So it's not like when you leave family and you're away for a day and you're like, Oh, I would like to see my mom again. It's not like that. This has been days and weeks. He's literally dying of thirst and his tears have been his food day and night. He's got nothing else at this point. He stays with the image of the deer thirsting for water when he mentions his tears, which is important because then we can see that he's dying of thirst and the only liquid he gets comes from his own eyes and that's no longer sad, it's pathetic. It's really, really pathetic. This guy is literally jumped down a well at midnight because there might be a drop of moisture at the bottom and that might save my life. That's where he's at. He's that kind of desperate right now. And at the bottom of the well, he's gone there and he's finding nothing but more reason to be desperate. Reason number two, the psalmist is desperate, is because he remembers how good things were. In verse 3, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. The festivals he's talking about happen several times a year. And and when they happened, he wouldn't just be a part of the festival, so it wasn't like something exciting is going on um, in somewhere near, in Boston, and then like, we hear about it or, or we might go and be in the crowd. He wasn't just in the crowd. He wasn't just somebody that heard about it from the media. But he would actually go and lead the throng to the temple. Now, to the temple is the key part there, too. So he would lead them to the temple. He had that ability to go to the temple. So he can remember how good these things were. And he imagined seeing hundreds and hundreds of Israelites marching towards the temple to worship and praise God and to receive life from them. This is the God who who gave them life as a nation, who gave them land, who fought wars for them, and who brought them out of Egypt. This was the God they hoped in salvation for. So we can see why this guy's desire to be with the Lord was so intense. It was joy for him. It was life for him to be with God. Nothing else in the writer's life could compare to times of worship in the presence of the Lord. The people would gather and they would make way to the house of God and they wouldn't be quiet about it because it was exciting. Memories of the joyous roar of the people at the temple only made the quietness of this moment worse. The psalmist remembers those good times and he's thankful for him, but it reminds him even more of what he doesn't have. He's desperate because all of that joy is now memory. He's at the bottom of the well. And there's nothing thirst-quenching. In fact, the situation is getting worse as he remembers the flowing spring that he used to get to drink from. Third reason the psalmist is desperate is because every time he tries to remember God's faithfulness, his mind shifts. He knows he's in a bad spot. He realizes his soul is in a really, really bad spot. Um, In verse 6 he writes, My soul is cast down within me therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Now, the psalmist is turning um, to the promised land, but he's sticking with the water imagery. So that's what these names are. So these are places, this is the region he's speaking of. the Jordan, Hermon, and Mount Mazar. We don't know exactly where Mount Mazar was, but it's a region of great height uh, in, in the promised land. And this is the region that, that the source of water for the the Jordan came from so flowing down from these from this region was the Jordan River and so his comparison is that he's remembering God the source of life-giving water that will keep him from dying as he remembers this he's trying hard to go straight to the source of life as he remembers as he remembers the heights of the promised land as he remembers the Jordan flowing down and as he uses this imagery he's going straight to God with it he's trying to think there but then we come across this difficult line in verse 7. You will read it with me. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now I say that verse is difficult because there seems to be some confusion here. Like this guy's been talking about being thirsty and dying of, of you know not having water. And now all of a sudden he's talking about the deep. And so we have to kind of figure that out. And... The confusion there is because he sticks with that water imagery, but looks at his situation differently. Now the water's different. It's not something he has to have. It's something that's actually bringing judgment upon him. He's been begging God for a chance to drink at the well of his goodness, and all he's found is the bottom of a dry well at midnight. So now, even as he tries to think of good things, what he's actually thinking is, it's judgment. So the very water he wants to drink he's now seeing as judgment so he uses the water imagery to show the depth of his emotions here imagine the depths of the ocean and all the chaos that happens there and then how much judgment it would be to just get thrown in the middle with no um, with no supplies no boat or anything and imagine a waterfall with all of its jagged rocks And to be thrown into that. And you can see how the psalmist is now showing great despair in his soul through this. He's picturing those awesome images of chaos and judgment now. And he's trying to think of the source of life. He's working hard to remember the God who is living water to his soul. He's trying to remember that. But all he can think of now is the chaotic, wavy, breaking waters that are just banging and beating on him. Not only are these waters not quenching his thirst... This water of judgment is actually killing him. He's going to die. So now, it's like it's midnight at the bottom of a dry well, and the only water he's getting is the kind of water that drowns you. That's kind of what's going on here. Reason four that the psalmist is desperate is because he feels forgotten. In the midst of all the chaos in the waterfall and in the deep, somehow he grabs hold of the covenant love of God. Uh, it's, it's really wild that he gets it here. But verse 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Almost like a lifeline as he was floundering in the deep water with no hope, he grabs onto the commands of God and rests in them for a moment. He prays to the God of my life. He says that. Again, we see how God is the central point of his life and, and the source of his life. But even though he knows that covenant love, he still continues to deal with the pain. We know that because the next line says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Knowing God is sovereign and gracious is a great comfort, but it doesn't mean that we won't hurt. Um, It doesn't mean that pain and sickness and death aren't going to come our way. And the psalmist gets that he knows God is the only source of his life and joy and he knows that God can give him that when he wants but for some reason God's forgotten he's desperate like he's at the bottom of a well at midnight with no water no rope no one to get him out and there's not going to be any emergency help because everyone's actually forgotten him. the fifth reason the psalmist is desperate Is because he's taunted by his enemies. Verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? Not only is he dying of thirst, which he he is. He's literally dying of thirst. And not only does he remember the good times and ache because they're there no more, not only does his mind drift as he tries to think of the good things, and his, his mind shifts this way. Um, not only all those things, and not only does he feel forgotten, but there are people taunting him the whole way. So, you know how sometimes your foot can go to sleep if if you sit wrong and, like, circulation's cut off for a minute, and, and your foot can go to sleep? You guys know what I'm talking about? Or no? Okay. Um, I just wanted to make sure... Uh, so that can happen, and it begins to feel like pins and needles when you, start, like when you reposition, your, reposition it. And, um, so the blood fl- starts flowing again, and it, it, you, know, you feel that, and it's not super comfortable. And then you kind of stagger around as you try to walk, because you don't quite have feeling in your foot anymore. And you, ch- Yeah, so if you don't get it, just act like you do. So anyway, um, so if that happened to me when I was growing up, I would do everything I could. To not give away that that was going on. Like, to make sure that there was nothing going wrong. Um, I could feel like I was stepping into a big bag of dirty needles. And I would keep walking and keep a straight face. Now, why would I do that? Well, I would do that because my brother's a jerk. And if he knew, he was going to attack. Right? I mean, if if I let on, he was just going to start kicking my foot, stomping on it, doing everything he could to bring pain. And... Uh, Now, we laugh about that situation, but it wouldn't be funny if my foot was actually broken, like and there was a cast on it and my brother, you know, takes a baseball bat and starts hitting me. That wouldn't be funny anymore, would it? Um, You would be appalled instead of laughing. Now, imagine if you're the writer of this psalm. You want one thing in life, to stand in the presence of God and delight in him. And for whatever reason, you can't get to the temple. You just can't get there. Maybe you're sick and you can't walk, or maybe you've been taken away from Jerusalem by enemies. Regardless, the one thing you want in life, God has been taken away, and you're almost dead from the pain of being far from him. And then your enemies see you. And they're bigger jerks than my brother. And so the more you hurt, the more they go after you. Where's your God? He's your source of life. Where's he at? Really, where, where is he? They just go after you, unceasingly. See, that's not funny either. It's horribly sinful, and we can see how that would cause great desperation in the heart of the psalmist. It's midnight, the darkness is oppressive, and this guy is at the bottom of the well, forgotten by everybody else except for his enemies, who are at the top, yelling down at him, where's your God? Those are five reasons from the text that this guy is desperate. He's been far away from God so long that he's going to die. He remembers how good things were, but that only makes him sad. Um, He tries to remember God's faithfulness, but his mind shifts. He feels forgotten by God, and he's taunted by his enemies. Now, I feel certain that each of us in this room have at some point hit at least one of those feelings of desperation. It may be today, it may have been last week, last month, or for some of us, it might have been our whole lives we felt that way. And knowing that this is true, it becomes super important for us to see from this text how this psalmist responds to this desperation. When it's midnight and he's dying of thirst, at the bottom of a dry well with no hope of rescue, what does he do? But what's his plan of action? And that brings us to our second question for the text. What does this guy think he should do In his desperation. So far I've skipped over verses 5 and 11. Both of those verses contain the same words. They're a sort of refrain uh, for the psalm. And they contain the answer to this question. He says this to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him my salvation, and my God. Now there are two parts to this refrain here. In the first part, the psalmist asks himself a question. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He acknowledges his suffering here and acknowledges his longing for God, but he's asking questions of himself. He's got tons of questions and he doesn't hide from them. He knows that he might give up should he not be in control of himself here. Should he not command himself to keep on, he could give up. So we ask his questions, and then he turns to hope. You heard his question Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? That's his question. Here's his response Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. That's his response. He's about to die because of the spiritual dryness that is his separation from God. And that's his answer? Hope in God? Why would he say that? Why would a guy literally dying from a distance he is currently from God say that when he can't do anything to pull himself closer? He's trying. Why would he say hope in God? Simple answer. He can't fix it. But he knows who can and who will. The psalmist knows God's character and will not be swayed by recent opinion polls of God's goodness. He will not look at his current situation and act as if God does not exist or is not somehow sufficient. He's not going to do it. The psalmist refuses that. That's why he says hope in God. He says it because deep in his core, he's convinced that... Read the rest of verse 11 with me. He's convinced that he shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. Because he knows God's character. Because he knows what God has done and continues to do. Because he knows God is beautiful and glorious. And because he knows that God is good to His people. The psalmist can say when everything else is wrong, when he's dying... He can say, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This guy was in pain and was about to die, but his answer was not to give up. And his answer was not to hope in lesser things that might make him feel better quickly. His answer was to hope in God, to hope in his salvation. He believed that God was better than anything else. And when confronted with death, he said, I'll take God. I hope you can see that with me. And more than that, I hope that you can feel that. I hope that your heart's able to resonate with that this morning. I hope your heart, when everything is going wrong, when desperation has overcome you, I hope your heart says, hope in God. So as we're finishing our time in this text this morning, and thinking about how it should shape our prayers and our lives, it's important uh, that we consider what we place our hope in. There's a lot of streams in our culture uh, that promise to satisfy our thirst, but end up being dust and rocks in the bottom of a dry stream, dry creek bed. That's what they end up being. There are a lot of places that we can turn for escape and joy when we become desperate. There just are. When we feel forgotten by God, when we feel left alone to face judgment, and when we feel taunted by our enemies, There's a lot of things we can hope in. I can hope in my job. I can hope in my schoolwork. I can hope in my wife and my friends and family. I can even hope in this place. I can hope in good health and I can hope in money. I can hope in drugs and sex and a million different things. But the psalmist says hope in one thing. Hope in God. The one thing that's far from him, but it's also the one thing that he knows is the source of life and joy for him. So hope in God. I can't stand here and promise that you won't feel like this guy that wrote the psalm one day. I, I can't even actually tell you that you don't feel this way right now. What I can tell you is that you, like the deer and like the psalmist, get to pick which stream you hope in and which stream you drink from. You get to, you get to pick that. The glories of Christ are seen most clearly on the cross The sinless one there took on himself the sins of all who would believe and bore the wrath that we might know him as the source of life and joy. Will you drink from that stream? When everything's going wrong, is this the stream that you hope in? In desperation, will you hope in the Christ? Will you drink from that stream, the one that brings forgiveness from sins and allows you to spend forever in the presence of the author of life, the one who used to dwell in that temple. Is that the one? I hope that you sit here today with a heart enthralled by the goodness of God and eager to spend your life in that stream. I hope that. Hope that for myself and I hope it for you. So, which stream is your stream? Which stream is your hope? Be desperate, like the psalmist. It's totally fine. Be desperate. Put hope in God in that desperation. And pray with that kind of hope. If you will, pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are the author and the source of life, and that You've created us to have joy in You and to have life in You. And Lord, if we run from that, we run from You, and You pull us back, I pray that You would make our hearts hope in You so that we might quit running. I pray that we would see You as our greatest joy, as the one with life-giving, thirst-quenching water. Let our hearts be affected by you, by your work on the cross, Lord. Amen.